I poured a glass of Monster into a fancy cup with ice in it because I'm a psychopath, apparently. And uh, I now understand why the cans are opaque. Have you guys ever seen what Monster actually looks like outside of the can? No, what does it look like? It's grisly. It looks like something out of like an early 2000s children's sci-fi fantasy show. <laughs> like it looks like I'm drinking some sort of mad science potion. I'm half expecting this thing to start glowing. It's like the most unnatural, eye-popping, candy-coated, bright pink. It's searing my eyes to look at it, and yet I'm okay putting it in my fucking body. I mean, if it works, it works. So, uh, this is gonna be one of those episodes where <laughs> Trip gets mad. <laughs> so just, uh, everybody buckle up. <laughs> Let's sink. Gang, why can't we have nice things? And by that, I mean, why can't the gaming industry just make nice things and make money off those nice things because that's what we're going to be talking about today i think hey guys trip here and this is the uh super pixel cast where we talk about video game news and just yell our little brains out about all of the crazy shit going on in the industry uh, I, i'm andy i wasn't here for the first one I'm Josh. I was here for the first one, unfortunately for you lots. And yeah, today we are talking about microtransactions, loot boxes, the whole live service shenanigans that we've come to know and despise. I didn't want us to dive into this so early in this show because I don't want this show to just be about negativity. But these past few weeks, we've just been bombarded by just this deluge of microtransaction news, of live service news. And it all started, for me at least, with this article I read on Kotaku by Jason Schreer, I believe his name is pronounced, about how Dragon Age 4 got canceled behind the scenes so that they could reboot it as a live service. Wait, what? Yeah. Now, before I say anything else, I should note that this is all based on anonymous sources and stuff like that. But anybody who's been in the game journalism, if you can call it that, industry for a while has probably heard of this guy and knows that more often than not, in fact, much more often than not, he's ended up being right about a lot of these things. He has a big network of people that he trusts and who trust him and who tell him about all this shit that goes on behind the scenes. According to this article, Dragon Age, a single player story-driven uh, tactical combat RPG was in development for a pretty long time. They had an entire plot, entire idea, and the article really goes into detail about a lot of this stuff. It's actually kind of fascinating and very interesting what they were planning on doing. They were very excited about how they were going to have the game be more reactive, have your choices matter. If you saw my rant on the episode yeah. last time about you know Vampire the Masquerade or The Outer Worlds, these RPGs where choice is very important and there's a lot of branching paths. That's kind of what they were trying to do with Dragon Age. 
And um, they were very excited about it. They thought they had the scope and the scale very realistic. So it wasn't just like big dreams. It was already in a doable state. The game took place in the Tevinter Imperium, which any fans of Dragon Age know that that's a place we haven't really seen yet, that there's a lot of cool lore about. You're speaking a foreign language to me. What is the Tevinter Imperium? It's, in short, they're this whole empire that's kind of like Byzantium meets Indonesia, but they're all ruled by wizards. That actually sounds awesome. It really fucking is. Huh. I mean, you would just add wizards and everything. It's awesome. The Dragon Age universe is a lot weirder than people give it credit for. But yeah, so we've been hearing about them for since the first game, and I've wanted to see them since the first game. So all of this stuff sounds great until EA decided to step in and say, no, we want to turn this into a live service. Is it like trying to be like some Elder Scrolls Online shenanigans? No, or? not even that. Like I, I would play a Dragon Age Online. I mean, as long as I didn't, <laughs> as long as I didn't replace the mainline game, I would play a Dragon Age Online. I would love a Dragon Age Online. No, I'm talking about like, I guess this gets into what's like the term live service itself and how nebulous that term is at this point, that really it's mostly just used as either a talking point for the industry or a pretty much a curse word by people like us. <laughs> but in essence, a game as a live service is this idea that um, you're going to be continually, ideally, you're going to be continually getting new content. It's a game that you can play for years and years and years to come. That's the mm. consumer side pitch for it. The industry pitch, like what they pitch to their investors mm. is, this is a game where we can have a lot of repetitive grindy content and we'll give players constant incentives to pay more money on top of the $60 price tag. I mean, I feel like live service though, because you have games like Destiny, which they tried to do stuff like that with, or like an ever evolving thing. The next, you know, three years later out came Destiny 2. Sorry, less than more than three years later, at least. I'll give them that. But yeah, you're kind of getting at the folly of games as a live service. <laughs> like you, you called it, you called out part of it there. The fact that they're willing to do that to Dragon Age just shows this level of out of touchness and incompetence that is almost hilarious. And I feel like we always like, whether we love them or hate them, we always put these companies on a pedestal. We assume that they are competent and that they know what they are doing and that their tactics, good or evil, will make them money. That myth is kind of what I want to talk about today. <laughs> like I said, I didn't intend for this episode to be about this. Like Andy <laughs> had this, like, this is an example of what I'm talking about, how this all hit us like a ton of bricks. Andy wanted to talk about Mortal Kombat. I'm like, fuck yeah, Mortal Kombat is awesome. I, I would love to, you know, along with talking about the Dragon Age thing, like, yeah, let's let's switch subjects and talk about, you know, a, an awesome fighting game. And then after one cursory Google search, I find out that they're throwing microtransactions in that game too. Because apparently you can't just unlock cosmetics anymore. And we've just come to accept that you don't get a full game when you pay for a full game anymore. And we're okay with that. So, like I said, this is gonna be one of those episodes where I'm angry and I'm gonna need you guys to bring some levity <laughs> into the episode because I, I ain't giving you none. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, 
the thing, the sad thing is, I mean, you know, as horrible as these business practices are, I mean, it's people are probably still going to buy enough of it that it's not going to affect their bottom line negatively. So, I think as until and unless you know gamers wise up to you know that the fact that this is shitty business practice and they should vote with their wallets, it's I just I'm just pessimistic about the future to be honest. Sir. But see, here's the thing, and this gets at the point that I'm trying to make that we, including myself, a lot of times assume that these are smart business practices and we're not really seeing the full picture because yeah, they are making money. Yeah, um, we are a small vocal minority amidst people who, and I don't blame people who pay for this stuff or who buy this stuff. I mean, we're the assholes who gaming is like our entire social lives that, you know, <laughs> get really invested in this shit. I don't get mad at people who don't think about this stuff. You shouldn't have to think about this stuff to enjoy a hobby. It shouldn't have to be part of it, but you have this situation where these developers simultaneously want you only to ever play one game and to spend all of your money on one game. That's the goal of all these live services. Well, at the same time, they're creating three or four of the same kinds of games within the same two or three years. It's a contradictory practice. One is directly damaging the other. And it's leading to these situations where we keep seeing, you know, shareholders say X, Y, and Z performed below expectations, even though they made millions and millions of dollars in profit. It's leading to these situations where we see games lose their quality. It's getting to these situations where the consumer experience is getting worse and worse and worse. And for what? I mean, if an industry can't survive without exploiting its employees, exploiting its consumer base, without pre-order bonuses, without microtransactions, without loot boxes, without Dorito sponsorships, without dodging their fucking taxes. That's not a healthy industry. I mean, if you think about it, we had a pretty damn good single player year last year. I mean, you know, with even PlayStation alone, there was, you know what, there was God of War, we had, oh, well, okay, Red Dead Redemption was multi-console. There was that. There was a bunch of, you know, little indie titles here and there. Smash came out last year, right? That wasn't, that was in the beginning of Yeah, the very end yep. of last year. Yep, yeah, you, you smashed last year. I mean, even, even multiplayer games had a pretty decent year. But I think the problem is there's just, you know, people look at games like The Division and Destiny and, you know, we hear games as a service and it's just like, oh, well, great. Like I could, like I mentioned Destiny before, I can keep this, you know, for years. And yeah, 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 you can port your character from Destiny 1 to, to Destiny 2. But I, as a consumer, was under the assumption that I was literally going to have Destiny and like they were going to update it. You know, obviously, as someone who's played multiple MMOs in my life, you know, assume that there was going to be some pretty hefty expansions coming. And then they just, you know, what, like how many years into Destiny's life, they just immediately announced Destiny 2. And therein lies one of my issues with games and service is if, if it's, you're going to try and keep something like that, and you're going to try and keep going. 
it's very bizarre to work on a sequel if you already have pumped tons and tons of content into something. Like Exactly. And you, you brought up a really, really good point. Like, let me just say, as far as I'm concerned, everything you said was like 100% true. Through all of my cynical ranting, it, it's so easy to forget that this industry is in a lot of ways in a better place now than it was a couple years ago with things like God of War, with things like Spider-Man, with things like Red Dead Redemption, with things like Super Smash Brothers. And that's really kind of the impetus for my rage <laughs> because we've seen time and time again that these kinds of games can succeed. And yet so many facets of the AAA market is just gaslighting us into thinking that we don't want this, that these games can't succeed. And again, one, they're lying. And two, even if that was the case, then it would be the result of the industry again, creating this self-perpetuating cycle of increasing budgets that they can't keep up with. That's what it's all about. Like. I love gigantic games that I can play forever. But at the same time, I understand that not every game needs to be these massive, infinite experiences. And even if you do want to do that, it can be more like The Witcher 3, where you can still find ways to have a feasible scope for your big open world adventure without the need for all of these obnoxious bells and whistles that don't add anything to the consumer experience. But yeah, so I guess what I'm saying is anytime the industry tells you they can't make these kinds of games, they're lying to you. Every time they're telling you that they need to have microtransactions or that they're just for player convenience, they're, they're lying to you. That's all it is. The whole games as a service thing, that sort of got me thinking about like, you know, the paradox model of, uh, you know, DLC. Let's take Crusader Kings 2, for example. That game came out in early 2012, so it's 17 years old. I'm not 17. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a little bit of a math problem there. Yeah, it's not quite that old, but it's still seven years old. The most recent expansion for that game came out the end of last year. And that's the, the 13th major DLC for it. And the game has come a long way since it was first released. And it was good to start with. But they keep, you know, adding to it and improving it. And they still add content even if you don't buy the expansion. And it's perfectly playable without any DLC. But it's sort of a double-edged sword as well. Because, you know, it, my big problem with it is that it creates a big barrier to entry for new players. Because, you know, if you want to buy all the DLC, even if it's on sale, which it goes on sale often... It's still not cheap. Sort of like a uh, a Sims situation. Sort of, oh, but Sims. not quite that bad. I like that, you know, they're making these games and they're continuing to improve on them rather than release, you know, do a Destiny situation where they, they make Destiny and then a few years later it's Destiny 2. So much for that. But at the same time, you know, like I said, it can create a big barrier to entry for new players. And, you know, just if you, or even if you like, you know, you skip a few and you want to buy them, you know, you you can wait for a sale, but still, it's a, you know, it's an added expense. You get what I mean? I feel like we do this like every three months, especially you and me, Josh. But um, <laughs> just as a quick reminder, um, if you want every single little bit of The Sims 3, a game that came out in 2009, 
um, the base game plus all the DLC will cost you $379.81. Just wanted to throw that out there. Thanks, EA. <laughs> Yeah, it's not quite that bad. I mean, does it ever go on sale? Or? Not all. We, we have this conversation like every other month. It's so I weird. know. Um, not all of it. Like it, I've never seen all of it go on sale. And I'm like a big Sims fan. Like I, you'll always get some that are on sale, but it's never all of it at once. Yeah, that is stupid. Yeah, I'm. I'm not defending that business practice. Don't worry. Well, well hey, hey guys, don't don't forget about Train Simulator. Oh my God, I've heard of that. Like the struggle is real for people who are into sit, like um, not the Sims kind of Sims. Like as bad as EA is, I have heard that like train simulator and shit gets buck wild. Yeah, I think, you know, to get all the DLC, I think it's like literally like thousands of dollars. I'm not even joking. Well, time to find out. I feel like with Train Simulator, at least, it's more of like a pick and choose thing, because unless you're totally insane, sorry to the people who do love Train Simulator and have all of the DLC, you're not insane to me, but, um, you know, you're just going to be like, oh, like, I, maybe I want that specific train or like maybe these specific trains. Well, like, I get what you're saying, because the comparison, again, to bring it oh back my God. to, oh, God, I Josh think he just found, found out. The total DLC for all for Train Simulator is eight thousand four hundred eighty-four dollars oh and five cents. That is like three zeros too many. Thousand dollars. <laughs> wow, I was gonna say maybe like three thousand. That's what I was thinking too. It's just still too much, but less than this. Who are the rich corporate CEOs who spend their free time playing Train Simulator? I want to meet them. Reminds me of those like rich CEOs who play Eve online and actually pay their <laughs> guild members like a salary to keep them at the top. <laughs> That's I mean, that that makes sense. I mean, everybody needs a hobby. I have no problem with the consumers that spend a ridiculous amount of money on this stuff. I have a problem with the developers and publishers who do their best to incentivize people to buy this stuff and make the experience worse if they don't. Now you brought up, you know, we're talking about train simulator and you bring up a good point. Like if it really is more of like a pick and choose which stuff you want, then that's less egregious. But like to bring it back to like the Sims, it's, I say this is somebody who just went buck wild on the Sims three. So I can speak from experience. Like there's a lot of stuff and even more when it comes to the Sims four where it's clear they tore out content that should have been in the game at launch, content that was in previous games so they can sell it back to you. That's, yeah, that's the point stupid. where it's like, you're a fucking monster. <laughs> but like, um, yeah, it's just, I wanna move on from this because I really wanna hear Andy talk about Mortal Kombat, but <laughs> I just have one more thing I wanna say about this whole debacle. And it's something that a lot of people don't think about. I always hear people say things like, oh, the microtransactions are, they're just cosmetic or they're just, they don't give you an actual advantage in play or something like that. The crux of these arguments are that, well, the microtransactions don't really have value. They're not like, you know, making your experience objectively better. But here's the problem with that argument. If that was the case, nobody would buy the microtransactions. These companies have no reason to sell you things that they don't have an intention on making you want 
to buy. That's why we get into situations where, you know, oh, like these are just time savers. And then the entire game is built around making the grind as egregious as possible to get you to spend money on those time savers. It's why, oh, it's just cosmetic. And yet they, uh, take out what I consider a crucial part of game uh, of gaming, not for everybody, but for a lot of people, which is player expression through the way that you look. Like, I think about to bring it back to World of Warcraft. Like, yeah, there's like a very small cash shop and I don't like that at all because I don't like any form of double dipping like that. But can you imagine if all of the hundreds upon hundreds of mounts or all of the different like gear, like high high level gear and outfits, if those were all microtransactions, if you couldn't get anything else other than a horse, unless you paid for it, that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's this situation where like, no, these things do have value to them and can add a lot to a game's experience. So I guess to sum up this diatribe and hopefully make it meaningful in some way, the industry is reaching a tipping point with monetization. These live service games are making them insane amounts of money in the short term, but it's going to blow up in their face in the end. These are unsustainable practices that incentivize insanely expensive, massively overproduced and underdeveloped products that almost never live up to their own expectations, let alone the expectations of the consumer. But most importantly, it doesn't have to be this way. The industry's problems are entirely of their own making. They're the ones that keep demanding these infinite experiences and abandoning them because they can't fix the broken games they shipped. They're the ones demanding bigger and bigger budgets, which in turn demand bigger and bigger profit margins. Not every game needs to be monetized out the ass to be successful. And if you're going to keep improving and updating a game for years and years to come, you can have microtransactions without them ruining the experience. And that's, that's all I have to say about this at this point. You guys know how I am. I, I really get angry when it comes to the whole games as a service shit. And uh, I'm done. Rant over. <laughs> it was it was the five hour energy, wasn't it? I, I, I'm drinking a fucking monster. Five hour energy is the gnarliest shit I've ever tasted in my life. I tried that shit once in high school. I almost threw it back up. Yeah, I've heard these energy drinks. They they all taste like piss, but apparently they do the jobs. Hey, Monster is delicious. Like, I'll stand by Like, I'm not really an energy drink person. Like, I, I didn't just drink this because I wanted energy for, you know, my sweet gaming skills. I just kind <laughs> of shamelessly like the taste of Monster. <laughs> but yeah, speaking of high octane energy and combat, Andy, tell us a bit about the old Mortal Kombat's. And don't you mean night high octane nightmare fuel? I think it was was it nine or ten? I don't know. The good Kung Lao character with a razor hat. For those of you who don't play Mortal Kombat, he basically puts the hat on the ground, spins it, grabs both of your character's feet, and drags them crotch first towards the spinning razor hat. God in heaven. Yep that 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 was one of one of the few. I mean, there's definitely quite a few other disgusting ones, but uh. That was that was one that made me like, oh, God, why? I'm very inconsistent when it comes to my reaction to gore. <laughs> I think it's all in the way that it's portrayed. Like 
like you like you saying what you just said, Andy, is one of the worst things I've ever heard come out of your mouth. And I've known you for a while. <laughs> but like seeing it, because I remember this, it's not nearly as bad as just somebody describing it out to you because it's framed in like a lighthearted, silly, intentionally over the top way. Then you look at something like uh, Hotline Miami, one of my favorite game series of all time. And it's like just the most old style looking graphics. And yet the way it's framed, the gore is some of the most unsettling shit I've ever witnessed in my life. Uh, I've actually never, never played Hotline Miami. Like, I know of it, but. Oh, my God, you need to play it. I will, like, give you access to my Steam account, like, to <laughs> let you play both of those games. It is some fucked up crazy shit that happens in that game. And honestly, the less you know about that game series and what it's about going into it, the better. Like, imagine if huh. Donnie Darko had sex with David Lynch and they somehow had a baby and their baby was also an ultra violent 80s crime drama. And then they made an arcade game based on it. That's Hotline Miami. Oh, OK. Yeah, because I just I don't know, it just kind of looked very like neon drenched and I was just like, interesting. Oh, yeah. It's a great game. But yeah, Mortal Kombat. But yeah, back to Mortal Kombat. The new one actually comes out in, let's see, it's 8, 18. Yeah, about four hours, actually. Uh, the cast of the new one looks pretty good. Every, everything, you know, seems to be shaping up pretty well. But one of the things that brought us here today about loot boxes and why, you know, real money transactions is bad is supposedly, for those of you who haven't played any of the relatively newer Mortal Kombat games, the way you go about unlocking stuff in them is in the crypt and... In 10, uh, that was the previous one. That was the one I spent, I believe, the most time in the crypt. It's like you play single player, you know, you can play just your character and you play in like towers, which are basically just, you know, you fight your way up a progressively more difficult tower and it gives you in-game currency. And you can spend the in-game currency in, in the crypt. You can unlock, you know, uh, different like fatalities and different things and that and the crypt is returning in MK Mortal Kombat 11, but supposedly, whereas in the old ones, you could basically just look up a guide for the crypt and you could just kind of go with, you know, what you wanted to unlock. Like, let's say, oh, you use Scorpion a lot and you're like, all right, well, I want to unlock like this fatality of his. Then you just look up a guide and then you have to like you just kind of have to walk through the crypt to find the specific place you need. and You unlock it. However, with Mortal Kombat 11, supposedly it's random. A and fucking course. Yes, it's it's not only random, but you could actually buy and or empty out all of the things in the crypt and still not actually have completed all of the collectibles or unlockables because drum roll, not negative drum roll. You actually can and I guess have to at this point reset reset the rooms and it resets the chests in the rooms in order. And, you know, again, totally random. I'm not sure, you know, what the odds are. I'm not sure if you can get duplicates or not, but that's definitely a far cry from the previous Mortal Kombat's where, you know, you kind of knew what you were getting with stuff. So this, this, uh, you know, it, the the Mortal Kombat subreddit has actually been pretty pissy about it, and I, I'm actually oh, a little shit. frustrated. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, like obviously, but I, I was watching the the newest combat cast, the one today where they they revealed like and showed some gameplay for the final two characters, one of which is Shao Kahn, who's the you know the boss of the original one, but he's now playable. If you pre order so the game. cool. Yeah, and they actually revealed that Frost is the unlockable character, and she's like a female version of Sub-Zero, but in this one, she's actually the leader of like a sub-faction of one of the ninja tribes, I guess, and they've started to make themselves into robots, and she's basically like ro- Robot Frost now, and like they revealed some of her her stuff today, and she's actually got some really interesting looking things. Like She can like take off her head and like throw it at people and shoot like frost or freezing lasers from her chest pretty cool but they also revealed that they heard the people who run the combat cast and they heard you know that people mentioned like it seemed like they didn't spend a lot of time on the towers in the game and like i said before the towers are how you unlock stuff in single player and you get the currency to go into the crypt and a lot of people were saying they weren't like finished and they weren't like their their difficulty was scaled way up and even if you know you were pretty decent at it, it was still really obnoxious. And they said they heard a lot of their feedback, and they're hopefully going to be adjusting stuff pretty soon, which I think is Give good. Me a break. Uh, no, 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 no. It's like ugh. this is what they do. Like they move the standard of what's acceptable so far to the extreme so that when people complain, they can act like they're doing us a favor by making it slightly less extreme, but still egregious. Like, can somebody explain to me how it improves the player experience to make these things random in the first place? You can't. Because there is absolutely no benefit to the player to do this. It is only the result of, again, taking something away from us, making something more obtuse, making the gameplay experience worse to make us spend more. And that is just such a backwards concept to me. Yeah, and I mean, that's... Like, I, I don't know. I don't really understand how a lot of these things get through QA or quality assurance testing. Yeah, It's like, not a matter of QA. Like, it, it's it's not a matter because that's the thing. It's not a matter of whether or not this is fun or whether or not this is a bug. This is a feature. They're doing this very intentionally. Like, I'm sure people in QA were thinking, well, this isn't fun, but that's not what matters anymore. And that's the problem. I mean, it really unfortunately does come down to the publisher itself pushing these terribly obnoxious mandates because you can tell like nether realm like obviously i mean ed boon clearly wouldn't be doing this if he didn't actually care about moral combat man's been doing this for almost as long as i've been alive and it's like it's unfortunate because you can tell with moral combat like even during the combat cast like their enthusiasm for stuff you know the developers they're like oh yeah you know we added this and like we think this is hilarious like, we thought this was really cool. And, you know, that bleeds through in their product. But then it's just it goes to a the publisher and they're just like, no, do this instead. Like, make this make this a, a better conduit for money for us. And it just it's just uh, endlessly frustrating. And again, it's just unsustainable. 
Like, that's the thing. Like, it's not good business practice. Everybody always says like, oh, a business's job is to make money. That's not exactly true. A business's job is to create value. And that term has a lot more of a multifaceted meaning than just pure cash. And we're in a situation where games are losing their value, even if the companies are making like just insane profits. And that's how you get into an unsustainable market. But I don't know. I, I want to. Yeah. If I could just interject with a rather bizarre oh, analogy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seems to me like what you're describing, it's kind of like how, you know, like, you know, the how farmers have a system of crop rotation, right? They leave one field fallow for the season. Because otherwise, if you farm forever, then you, the soil goes to shit and you uh, have no food. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So basically what I'm saying is that, you know, these big AAA publishers and everyone, they're like, they're basically not treating games as like renewable resources. Ah. Yeah. You see what I'm getting at? Slash and burn. Pretty much, yeah. You lost me at the beginning, but you reeled me back in. That's actually a really good analogy. It's like, um, to make it even more like weird analogies in real life, it's kind of like how in, uh, I think it was in parts of Africa during like colonialism, the French were like just farming the shit out of the land. And the people were like, hey, you can't do that. The land's really fragile. It'll give us what you need. But, and then the French was like, ah, shut up. And then, like, <laughs> widespread desertification happened in large parts of Africa that still, still hasn't happening. been healed today because they yes. over-farmed. That's what this industry is doing. They're over-farming, and eventually the soil's going to go dead. Yeah. I really want to talk about um, Jedi Fallen Order because, for one thing, it ties into what we're talking about in regards to microtransactions because EA made a huge and mind-blowing decision that's sure to make us all, you know, praise them as our saviors, there's not going to be loot boxes or microtransactions. Hmm. And, like, don't get me wrong. That's, like, everybody's making fun of EA for this, and they should, because clearly they wanted us to, they wanted to gain some PR off of that, but, like, this sh this is the bare minimum. It's like, it's like a serial killer saying, oh, I'm not going to murder you. I mean, thanks, but like that that should kind of be the default. But at the same time, it's really good to see that. And it's good to know that maybe EA is learning that at least they can make single player story focused games without the need for microtransactions and still make a pro profit. It may also be the result of Disney getting kind of antsy with working with EA in the first place after, you know, all the shit they did with Battlefront 2 and that ended up making Disney look bad. I don't know. That's just wild speculation. But how much do you guys actually know about what this game is? Uh, I know next to nothing. Uh, you're talking about Full on Order, right? Just just to make yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, like a pretty decent amount. It's one of one of the more interesting timelines in the Star Wars universe that I think hasn't really been explored too much. So I, I'm actually I'm pretty hyped for it, especially a single player game. Right. For those of you at home that don't know, um, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order is actually like it. I had this idea years ago, and I'm not saying that to say they stole my idea, even though they probably did. I'm saying it just to say how many people must have had this idea, like how many Star Wars fans have wanted to play a game like this and how it's almost like they read the minds of a lot of fans. 
Jedi Fallen Order takes place right after episode three, Revenge of the Sith, when, not to spoil like a 10-year-old movie, but the Empire, the newly formed Empire ends up just eradicating most of the Jedi Order and any Jedi left are forced to go into hiding. And the cool thing about this is that you're playing as a very powerful person who has to kind of hide his powers. How do you balance, you know, the Jedi code with, you know, your need for self-preservation? Do you, you know, help someone on the street who's being attacked by thugs in the slums of Coruscant? Or do you just keep walking? Do you draw out your, your blaster or do you pull out your lightsaber? Like there's all sorts of cool, interesting plot threads that can come from this. So um, we don't know that much yet about like what the moment to moment gameplay will be like, but they've told us that the game is going to be somewhat similar to a Zelda game in a sense in that there's going to be like big places to explore, um, dungeons with bosses at the end, essentially. It's the kind of game I never thought a company like EA would make. And it's the kind of game that until something like, you know, Breath of the Wild came out and again, taught the industry, you could make a game like that and still make money. I wouldn't think that the AAA industry would ever make a game like that. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying it's gonna be like, Breath of the Wild, and that's gonna be like a big reactive dynamic world. What I'm saying is the idea of having a giant budget Zelda style action adventure kind of RPG-ish game at all is crazy to me. And that's why I am, despite all the bullshit and all of the shade I threw at EA, I am legitimately excited for this. Because when they want to, they can make a good game. They have talented people over at EA. I've played games from them that I have really liked. So if this is their response, especially if this is them getting like kind of scared about the reaction to Battlefront 2 and they're actually gonna make a real game for once, then I'm not that worried that this one will be good. I don't know. I mean, I think I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about it because, you know, I more Star Wars things are always great for me. I have I've honestly never played a Star Wars game, but I mean <gasps> I mean I oh wait, no, 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 no. I did play like that pod racing game for the N sixty four. Uh Okay, that game is great. Yeah, but uh I haven't played one in recent times. But uh I know they had Battlefront 2, which was apparently a total disaster, so mm -hmm. I don't think there's any chance they'll lose the license. I mean, it could just be trying to, like, then prove that, you know, hey, we could make a good Star Wars game, you know, and try and, like, build up some goodwill, maybe, since, you know, but, you know, before they inevitably cock that up with another Battlefront 2-esque game. So. See, that's, God, that's what Jim Sterling was saying in his, in, uh, one of the more recent episodes of his podcast, basically exactly what you said. It's like, it's it's too cynical even for me to want to put that in my head, that like this idea that they're doing this so that they can then come out with another Battlefront style game or they'll, or Jedi Fallen Order 2 will then have a bunch of microtransactions in it and will already be sold on the premise and want to see what's next, so we're gonna buy it anyway. 
I really hope that's not what happens. I want to believe that there is some kind of humanity left in this industry and that somebody can make something and be passionate about their work and proud of it and make a ton of money off of it and then just want to make that experience better. But I don't know. Only time will tell. <laughs> but I think that's going to do it for us, guys, unless you have any um, more topics you wanted to bring up. Yeah, and I've been having fun playing Imperator Rome. It's just, I've been busy with work, but I'm really looking forward to writing the review about it. Oh, shit, yeah. Talk about that briefly, because I think the embargo's up for talking about it. You just can't have the yeah, review and it's Yeah, and it's out in a few days anyway. So, Imperator Rome. It takes place during the period of early on in the Roman Republic. And if, for those of you who have played uh, Paradox Grand Strategy games, such as Europa Universalis Four, which takes place during the Renaissance, the Age of Discovery, up till the early 19th century... There's Crusader Kings 2, which takes place in the Middle Ages. Each of those sort of has like a focus, if you get what I mean. Like Europa Universalis 4, it's more about, you know, colonization and warfare and being a, you know, your country and building it up. Uh, Victoria 2 is sort of like the people of your country. I mean, they're still, you know, you play as a country and you invade and conquer other countries because that's what people did in the 19th century. A lot of it's the focus of, you know, the people and how they move about. For example, like, one of the reasons the USA can become so powerful in that game is because people move from Europe, usually from Europe to the USA. It builds up your economy and blah, blah, blah. And then, well, Crusader Kings 2 is the focus is the characters. You know, for example, you're playing as a dynasty. Rather than playing as just the King of England, you're playing as the King of England and his family. And you have to play them over generations and make sure that it all doesn't go to shit. Imperator Rome takes inspiration from all of that. You know, it takes, you know, the character dynamic from Crusader Kings 2, the warfare from European Universalist 4, and like the population mechanics from Victoria 2. It's also not just like an amalgamation of Paradox games, it definitely has its own thing to it. I haven't played, you know, enough to like give like a full definitive sum up of it, but I think it's definitely worth checking out. And, I, and knowing Paradox, they're going to improve on it over time, I'm sure. Well, cool. I mean, like I've always meant to get in to those kinds of games. Like um, they always seem kind of intimidating, but I know that they're like, because I'm big into history too. And I'm yeah. big into strategy games and... I mostly play like turn-based strategy games like Civ and stuff like that. So yeah. I'm just like, I'm always terrified getting into more like real-time stuff. That's Is, is this I mean, real-time this is real-time with, this is stuff with real-time with pause. So like you can oh, adjust okay. the speed of how far it goes, of how fast it goes at any time. You can also pause the game at any time, but still like give orders to your units and make decisions and whatnot. Paradox games are a lot more accessible than they used to be. Like I played Europa Universalist 3 back in 2010 and... It was a lot, a lot, a lot of trial and error. And the tutorial was worthless. Like, it crashed the game after it was done, and I didn't learn anything. So. Holy shit. Yeah, it was bad. I mean, it was also developed by, like, three guys, so oh, it was well, on okay. credit. Today, like, you know, the, the Imperator Rome tutorial, for example, was pretty good. It helped me get a, a handle on the basics. There's still a learning curve, absolutely. Like, it's not something, you know, you can just be good at immediately. But it's not like a learning cliff like other games in the paradoxes past have been so right right um you said something that has gotten me interested in it for one um you said it's kind of an amalgamation of a lot of the stuff that came before it and um one thing that i always find lacking in strategy games whether they be real time or term based is that like they focus very heavily on one aspect of the simulation 
and not on others. So, and I know like you can only have so much in a game without it getting overwhelming, but it's like what I look for in these types of games, I want to feel like I'm really running a country and making decisions. So it's cool to know that there is stuff having to do with the, uh, the population and what they're doing, but there's also stuff to do with, you know, who the leaders are and the rulers and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's something that I could be interested in picking up. I'm not as much of a Rome nerd as you are. You know, I'm more of a like a Chinese or Aztec or like Egypt, stuff like that kind of person. But like, I'm, I'm intrigued. You've piqued my interest. For you, I'd say maybe wait until it goes on sale because I mean, if you're not as much of a Rome nerd as me and you're not as into Paradox games, but I mean, you know, they go on sale really often. So, you know, you can definitely pick it up and, you know, maybe give it a shot. Well, cool. Um, if that is it, though, I think it's about time to wrap up. Um, yeah, so this has been the Super Pixel Cast. If you want to know where to find us, you can find us at comicsverse.com. There we talk about comics, uh, the industry, video games, movies, all that cool sort of nerd stuff that'll be great for your brain. So yeah, look us up on there. Um, the, the podcast is actually on iTunes and uh, the Google Play Store. It's right now, it's actually in the um, Comics First podcast feed, which is another show that you should definitely be watching as well. It's, as the name suggests, it's more of the comic side of things. But if you're at all into that or you just want to see cool people hang out and talk about comic books, then yeah, that's the place for you. And um, like I said, for now, we're over there before we get our own feed. So you can check out the first episode there and probably this episode too. So yeah, I think that'll do it for us. We we really need some kind of outro for this show, don't we? Yeah, like I agree. Like, like all the real, all the real podcasts, all the cool kids, like they say something like have some catchphrase at the end or say something really cool, something iconic. In the last episode, we just kind of apologized to our boss for <laughs> the, the podcast crime we committed before <laughs> our editor cleaned it up and made it sound smart. Like, if you guys liked the last episode, like you guys at home, if you liked the last episode of the podcast, and I, if you do, that that's super flattering. I'm glad you do. That had less to do with us and more to do with the grownups at this company cleaning up our mess. <laughs> so, I don't know. I guess, uh, I guess for now, bye.